This is the Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheiman, brought to you by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. From the Gal Media Studios, here's Greg Scheinman. All right, here we go. Midlife Mail Podcast time. I am super excited for this week's episode, and you guys are about to hear why. If you like the show, Please continue to give us those five-star reviews. Continue to tell other guys about it and spread the word on the Midlife Mail podcast. We want to keep this movement growing and bring more amazing content to you week after week. Remember, the next phase of our life is the best phase of our lives. So let's keep living our best lives every single day. Seamus Mullen on the show today. He is an award-winning New York chef, cookbook author, and wellness expert. He grew up on an organic farm in Vermont, found his first fame in 2006 with his inventive modern Spanish cuisine at Boqueria, an acclaimed successful Spanish restaurant in New York. In 2007, he was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. It forced him to rethink his relationship with food and also led to his first cookbook, Hero Food, which was released in 2012. We're going to talk to Seamus about how diet, exercise, and lifestyle changes he was able to successfully turn his health around and overcome what is commonly considered to be an incurable disease. In 2009, Seamus was one of the three finalists on the Food Network's Next Iron Chef. Today, he's often featured as a guest judge on the popular Food Network shows Chopped and Beat Bobby Flay and is a frequent guest on the Today Show, The Dr. Oz Show, Martha Stewart Show, and CBS This Morning. He's also been on a lot of other great podcasts that I listen to, and he's an amazing speaker, and you're going to hear all about that very shortly. He has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune, and The Guardian. He has written about his experience for The New York Times and through his bi-monthly column in Men's Journal. In August of 2017, he released his second cookbook, Real Food Heals, Eat to Feel Younger and Stronger Every Day. I just bought a bunch of these to give out to friends, clients, family members. It's an incredible book, and I highly recommend it. So let's get into it with Seamus Mullen in Brooklyn, New York, at his place. Let's go. All right. Good morning under the Brooklyn Bridge here. Uh, Midlife Mail, podcast time, Seamus Mullen. I want to jump right in and ask you about the tipping point, that that pivotal time in your life when you said, okay, I, I need to do something different. I need to change it up a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, for me, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty... Severe. It wasn't just like I need to change it up a little bit. I um, I've been working as a chef professionally for uh, probably 15 years, and I was pretty well established in my career. I was doing really well, um, but my health was not good at all. I was on this this downward slip slippery slope into into ill health. Um, I was living with uh, with an autoimmune disease with rheumatoid arthritis. I was on tons of pills a day. I was on uh, weekly infusion, daily injections. I was overweight um, and I, I could barely get out of bed in the morning. So I was, my career was doing really well, but my body was completely suffering the consequences. 
And I got to the point where, I mean, I'd been in and out of the hospital for several years, every couple of months. And I got to the point where um, I had a really, really severe health crisis um, and developed bacterial meningitis, an infection in my brain. And, uh, and I, I basically died in the ICU. And when I was able to come back from that, and I had one of those classic near-death experiences where you see the light and you see the other side and made a, a, a conscious choice in that state of unconsciousness to come back. Um, when I came back, I, I made a commitment to myself that I was going to make serious changes into how I was living my life because if I didn't, I wasn't going to be around. What were the, what were the steps that you took? And so from the time that you get out of the hospital to changing basically your, your entire lifestyle uh, in, in an industry also that doesn't typically allow for that. You know? yeah. Not the healthiest industry, hours-wise, stress-wise, um, food-wise, you know, in there too. What were the specific steps that you took? Well, the, I mean, the first thing that I did, which I think was fundamentally the most important step I took at all, was to stop thinking of myself as a victim. Um, it, it, took, uh, it took a lot for me to, to put on my big boy pants and say, you know what, fuck this. It's, maybe it isn't my fault that I'm here, but some of it is also my responsibility. And regardless of, of what got me to, to this place of being a completely sick person, I need to take ownership over my own well-being. Um, and, and, I, and I talk about this a lot, but it's really important to me to, to recognize that there's a difference between um, being sick and having a sickness. And I was really mired in this idea that I was sick, that I was a sick person, which meant that anything that I went through was not my fault. You know, this is, this is all the result of outside forces. And um, once I was able to kind of get past that and start to recognize, no, I'm, I'm a strong human being. Uh, I have means, I have, I have um, will, I have drive, I have discipline, but I happen to be also living with a sickness. Um, it was hugely empowering. It made me feel as though, one, I wasn't at the mercy of the medical community, uh, and two, that I could, I could do a lot on my own to affect change and, and autonomy over my health. And the hard part is, as you, you pointed out, I mean, this is an industry, the, the, the hospitality industry is an industry in which we take really good care of other people, but we're pretty shitty at taking care of ourselves. Um, it's very difficult. The margins are so small. The hours are long to try to make things work. And uh, it's a very, very stressful um, work environment. So it, it was really difficult to try to find some sort of compromise between a healthy work-life balance. But it became really clear to me that if I didn't um, do that and I didn't strike some sort of compromise in my own life, that I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't be any good to, to my team, to my business, to my, to my customers, uh, ultimately to to my community in general because I was I was going to be around I was going to, I was going to die how was your support group or people at that time did you feel like you were going at it mostly alone were they resistant to to change or your changes you know in there mm -hmm. or who did you turn to or were you mostly self self driven it can be these changes can be lonely also oh, yeah. at times too yeah well i think that you know it's, it's important to recognize that anytime someone is going through a, a, a major, major crisis like this, particularly a health crisis, um, it is unreasonable to expect that person to be able to just Horatio Alger themselves up and, and, and get on and, you know, mm -hmm. listen, get over yourself. Just you can get through this. It really does 
take a community. It takes a lot of support. I was very lucky that I had the support of my family, of my of my team, of my friends. Everyone kind of rallied around me to 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 help me um, make changes. And when you know I, we talk about health, about about illness as a, as a, as being something that's contagious, I think health is as contagious or more contagious than illness. When you start to make good decisions about your own health and your own mm-hmm. well being, it starts to to rub off on the people around you, uh, the people you're closest to. Uh, they start making better decisions, which then begets um, uh, a community of solidarity. And there's a sense of support and of accountability. Um, and then also, you know, as I started to feel better, as I started to make positive changes in my own well-being, I was like, listen, I want to feel better. I want to feel even more better than this. Um, so getting a taste of, of, of improvement was huge. And then being able to kind of grow from that was really, really big. How are you also, you talked about balance a little bit there. And, and, and how difficult was it for you going through this challenging or even uplifting too mentally physically emotionally even financially if it changes your mindset are you thinking about not cooking the way you had cooked mm-hmm. before or serving how I imagine not only the physical toll of, of self-improvement but again the mental emotional and even generally financial from a business standpoint how do yeah. you manage that well there's also I mean there, there's also the the financial impact of, of one it's it's very costly to invest in your own health mm-hmm. so Making the making the decision to say you know I, I'm going to buy better quality ingredients for myself that's expensive mm-hmm. food is expensive um, I'm going to invest in acupuncture which is not covered by insurance I'm mm-hmm. going to uh, invest in a yoga practice I'm going to invest in all of these things add up and cost money so there's that financial aspect then there's the other part of it which is uh, you know I'm going to if if my businesses are are thriving but at the expense of my health. Is that really uh, is that really worth it at the end of the day? Is it worth it for me to kill myself for extra dollars, or is it better to forego and say no? Which is something that was really difficult for me to do. It still is difficult for me to do, but I'm I'm trying to get better at it. Learning that, hey, you know what? I can't do every project. There are mm-hmm. lots of there are lots of opportunities that could have financial upside, but are going to have, there's going to be an opportunity cost in doing them. And usually the, the, the opportunity cost that plays out in my well-being and my health. Mm-hmm. Had you traditionally been more of a yes person or even more of a type A, like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And then, like I found, it, it's hard to say no. I mean, mm-hmm. things sound yeah. attractive. They sound interesting. Like, let's go speak at this engagement or yeah. let's go cook over here or go work with this client over here. I'm like, you want to say yes to a lot of things. And as you realize, after a certain period of time, Maybe at the expense of myself right. know, or, or my, my quality of life. And what's the real value you're bringing? If you say yes, but you show up and, you're, and, and, and you do a half-baked job of it or you're exhausted or you're, you're, you fucked up your schedule and you end up mm-hmm. you should be doing something else because you're just, you're, there's too many things going on, yep. it's important to, 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 as best as you can, to prioritize the things that are really, really of value to you. And sometimes those... Oftentimes, I find the things that are really of the highest value are not necessarily um, financially valuable, mm-hmm. but they're more about uh, they're experientially value valuable. They're more about uh, greater fulfillment that's beyond the financial. Mm-hmm. And I really liked what you said and identified with the investment aspect of it. That you know the self care or the positive steps that you're taking, whether it be yoga, whether it be acupuncture, whatever anybody is, is mm-hmm. necessarily into or doing, you know, those things eating better, they certainly come at a, at a cost. And then there's there's a trade-off to that too. And you say, okay, well, if I'm reducing 
my, my alcohol intake or yep. eliminating my alcohol intake or I'm not really going out at night the same way that I was mm -hmm. eating, drinking, spending or doing because I've booked that yoga class the yeah. next day, you know, or, you know, you kind of almost kind of look at it from a, from a business, from a ledger standpoint. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I can move these dollars. I can move this time. The balance this sheet. Way, that yeah. way, the balance sheet. Exactly. And, you know, and create a lifestyle that, again, is more sustainable um, and it's more more fulfilling again mentally physically look at the numbers and go okay this is playing out in a whole yeah. lot of value added areas yeah i was at, it's funny i was at the farmer's market a couple of years ago having a conversation with one of the farmers that i buy produce from and uh and she said something really 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 profound that resonated with me and she said you know you can either pay your farmer today or pay your doctor tomorrow and it really is about that balance sheet that it's really it's very easy to think um, oh, this food is super expensive, but you don't realize that perhaps eating well is going to save you the five thousand dollar medical bill that you yeah. might have down the road. Um, and, and for you know, for me, I've gone from going, you know, I, I went from in, being in the hospital very frequently, spending a lot of money uh, out of pocket on medical care. Um, this is before I went through a transition. Just. General, general, you know, copays and medication mm -hmm. copays, and uh, down the line, um, not meeting my deductible, etc. Like all of this stuff, that to to go from that to then reclaiming my health, taking care of myself, and I mean, I hardly ever go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm fortunate that I well touch wood, but like I'm fortunate that I hardly ever have to go to the doctor now, and 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 as a result, yeah, I definitely spend more money on on food and supplementation than I did when I wasn't really caring for myself. Mm -hmm. But I'm not shelling out money to the to, to the medical community. Let's talk a little bit about what your routine is now. Mm -hmm. What's your what's your daily routine now? As we sit here, beautiful apartment, beautiful mm -hmm. view, new girlfriend, bike on the wall. Yeah. you know, books are out. Like, what's your what's your daily routine? Um, yeah, I'm very lucky in that now uh, now that I'm out of the restaurants and I'm not working on a day to day basis in the restaurants that uh, I have quite a bit more flexibility. So I work on a lot of different projects. Um, uh, various consulting projects and um, you know I do a lot of writing uh, a lot of media stuff and so my day-to-day -day, there isn't a lot of consistency which I think is is something that can be difficult for a lot of people when they're working towards reclaiming their health consistency is really is really important but what I try to do is create within that world and within that schedule a certain amount of consistency so uh, some people it's funny some people do really well having their morning routine where they wake up every morning at 6 a.m. They have the same thing for breakfast or they have their coffee, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They, have, they go to the gym, they work out. Um, I have, I'm way more fluid. So I look at my day on a day-to-day -day basis and say, okay, what time do I have? Yesterday, for instance, I had a lot of administrative work to do throughout the day, but then I knew that I had a window of time between five and seven where I was going to be able to, to work out. So I, I, I programmed my workout into that time. Today, I'm meeting with you in the morning. I had some stuff to do earlier in the morning. Um, I've got another podcast that I'm doing in, in uh, three hours. So when we finish this, I'm going to go to the gym, bang out a workout, then go to that podcast. Then I got an event at, the, at, at Google. So I have like, you know, every day is totally fluid and different. And then there are other days where I, I have more... Um, I have more flexibility within the day and I don't have anything programmed that specific day. And so I can, I can decide, all right, I'm going to work out at this point. Um, but you know what? I've done a, three days of really intense stuff. I'm going to take this day and I'm going to actually, I'm going to sit and read. I'm going to leave my cell phone at home. I'm going to go to a coffee shop and read. Mm -hmm. And so I try to carve out as much as I can sometime throughout the, throughout the course of the day 
um, and ideally a good chunk throughout the course of the week just to do something that really is about um, engaging another aspect of my mind that isn't necessarily, I'm not reading about health, I'm not reading about uh, self-help, I'm not necessarily reading about uh, business or entrepreneurship, I might be reading a novel. Mm-hmm. Where I'm really trying to engage a different part of my brain and and tap and allow myself to have a bit of escape, so it's it can be totally different on a day to day basis. Do you manage and run your own schedule, or is it agents, <clears throat> managers, PR people, pub book publishers? Are you you managing your, and running your own schedule? Because I, I I'm interested in that that mm-hmm. transition also to. Kind of personal brand, you know, yeah. out of the kitchen per se, and out of owning and operating restaurants, but into speaking, writing, and these creative outlets, these value elements to to touching different people different ways. I'm just interested in in how that really happens. You know, yeah. are you fielding calls or people setting stuff up. I've always been interested in, well, like look at look at the content that's being mm-hmm. generated and where where people like yourself are. And I've always wondered how. At a macro level, yeah, it's it's hard at a macro level. I mean, you're when you're doing, I, I don't I don't get up and go punch in, and go and um, you know make the donuts for eight hours and punch out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't done that for a while, so it definitely means creating a, a schedule that has some fluidity to it. But I am beholden to sometimes I'm beholden to clients, and whether that means early phone calls or that means. Uh, you know, uh, managing meetings. Um, I, I, I do a lot of media and press, so that means also managing through my, uh, with my publicist, what, what my timing is and, and where, where I land. So there's a lot of, generally speaking, you know, I try to have, I try to have, a, um, I work with a number of people who are, I'm the one that's ultimately managing my schedule, but they, they help me in, in certain capacities and are touching on whether it's on a client basis working with my, and speaking engagement, working with my agent, or if it's working with uh, my publicist uh, to do to 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 fulfill media requests. Um, and I, I, I one thing I do have to do on a daily basis is carve out some time for writing because I do a fair amount of writing and I need to, you know, there's, whether it's recipe development, um, it's doing a blog post or responding to an, an interview request uh, via writing. Um, I'm working on a new book now. So there's like a lot of, uh, there, there, there's always time that I need to carve out for that as well. But that ultimately comes back to me, figuring out how, what I, what I can and can't do. Let's talk about, you mentioned writing. Let's talk about the book a little bit here. Sitting, sitting right in front of me. Mm-hmm. How Changing the Way I Eat Saved My Life, Real Food Heals, Eat to Feel Younger and Stronger Every Day. I love all of that. Yeah. I, with, yeah. with all of that. Again, as a 46-year-old guy, father of two, you know, trying to stay as healthy as I possibly yep. can, um, coming from a family that had health issues and father passed away at a very, you know, at a young age and mm-hmm. stuff. These th- and not having lived a very healthy life, even myself, for a while, mm-hmm. these things are all you know, super, super important. Yeah. Um, how does one eat to feel younger and stronger every day? You know, it's, it's funny. We, we live in a world where we need uh, a trainer to tell us how to move our bodies. We need a nutritionist to tell us how to eat. You know, we need, we need all of these experts to weigh in and tell us how to live. We've become very, very disconnected from our, our, our participation in the natural world, if you will. And uh, technology often contributes to that dis- disconnect. Um, I think it can also help us to reconnect in many ways um, when, when it's sensible. Uh, 
for instance, when you have a podcast that gives you great information that you have a takeaway from. Um, and I've certainly learned a lot through podcasts. Um, but there's there, but 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 technology can be a real distraction from from uh, being in tune with our with, with our own nature. And when I think about developing a positive relationship with food, because I think that's something that a lot of us have grown up with a very antagonistic relationship with food, mm-hmm. where we have this strong love, almost emotional connection to foods that we call comfort foods that in the end are probably not making us feel very comfortable. Um, so reestablishing what I like to consider to be a much more natural relationship and positive relationship with food. And that means learning to love foods that love us back, um, is, is, I think is really, is, is really one of the fundamental steps towards, <clears throat> towards, um, leading a life of health and wellness as it relates to food and food is, is to me a building block. And that, that doesn't necessarily mean that what works for me. And there is no, I don't think there's a single diet for everyone, because if you look at the, the Inuit in, in above the Arctic Circle in, in, in northern North America, they eat very differently from um, from uh, the folks in the Caribbean and, and uh, from um, the way uh, people are, are, are eating in, in, in Western Europe. Like every, every community and culture um, has a very, very different approach to diet uh, historically. Um, and, and a lot of that really has to do with what's surrounds us in their environment. We live in a world now where we live in a very artificial environment and we have access to anything at all times. So that doesn't necessarily mean that what works for me is going to work for you. I think it's really about um, developing a, a strong, intuitive understanding of what makes you feel good physically. And that oftentimes comes from trial and error, but it also comes from, um, I think for a lot of people, they don't realize that they don't feel so great. They don't know how good they could actually feel. Um, so doing some sort of cleanse or elimination diet or getting yourself to a, a baseline where you can then start to add foods in and understand how, have a little bit more um, uh, sharper sharper perception as to how foods make you feel, then you can start to dial in a relationship for with food that really works for you. And that's something that I've been able to do. And I know really well, like I know when I kind of stray from the path of eating the way that I like to eat, I feel like shit pretty quickly and I, I notice it and I notice it in my, my mental performance. I notice it emotionally and I notice it physically. So really um, that idea of developing a really positive relationship with the food I think is really important. And, and, and I, I like to think of my book as, as being a great starting place for a lot of folks to say, try this out. And realistically for me, eating for health and wellness is no different from eating for pleasure. It's, you know, my recipes are all real chef driven recipes. It's delicious food. There is no, we're not foregoing any sort of indulgence or pleasure, but it's just kind of reframing those ideas. Mm-hmm. And I like that a lot uh, in, in the regards to the healthier, in a way, individuals I speak to, men, women, people that I train with or just hang around with, and even go out, and go out to eat with and, and break bread and sit around, and meals are, are comforting and enjoyable and social, and it's one of the things I love the most about it. But those individuals that are ingrained in that lifestyle or have been for a while eat in what I don't want to say plainly, but very basically and plainly and consistently mm-hmm. versus talking about in a way the latest you know the latest diet or buzzword you know yeah. or thing to thing to be on. Uh, I guess what's and I've at certain points I've dabbled in all of that whether it was yeah. keto whether it was paleo you know yep. got big into CrossFit and everybody in CrossFit was a paleo person right, right. And, you know and then got more into endurance stuff and you had to do it a, a different way and I like the experimentation aspect of, yeah, yeah. of 
what works for you, but do you have a stance or kind of a opinion on any of these you know, either diets or mm -hmm. is it, again, for the most part, you're just going on, on feel? Yeah, well, I do have a stance because I feel like um, it, one of the things that we have done as, uh, as a culture and we're exporting a lot of this to other cultures is we've, we've really embraced convenience food. Um, and convenience food, generally speaking, is made out of inconvenient ingredients. It's made out of um, ingredients that are, that are sub-quality, sub-par. Uh, there's a lot of industrial oils, which I think are very toxic, um, things like canola oil and peanut oil. Um, a lot of the seed and so-called vegetable oils, I think, are really toxic, and they, they end up in a lot of our pro highly processed food. Um, I think that there is a real problem with the overconsumption of refined sugar and refined carbohydrates in our diet. I think those are the two key driving factors. Now, that's not to say that I think that a paleo diet or a keto ketogenic diet is the right thing for everyone. I think there's real value in both of those approaches um, for a very specific goals. For instance, uh, you know, somebody who is living with neurological inflammation, somebody who might um, uh, suffer from epilepsy, mm -hmm. the ketogenic diet can be extremely, extremely effective in helping to control that. Um, somebody who is uh, very overweight and trying to lose, lose body fat and get back in shape, um, the ketogenic diet can be really helpful for doing that relatively quickly. Um, that's not to say that for every endurance athlete, the ketogenic diet is necessarily the best approach. Mm -hmm. I think you can, there is a, a there, there's a smart way of being a fat burner and being an endurance athlete, and it can be done. Um, it requires uh, a lot of discipline and retraining your metabolism to work in such a way that it, that you can effectively, uh, you can effectively be a fat burner and, 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 and say an endurance runner. Um, but like, you know, I don't, I, I don't think that any of these things, whether it's uh, vegan or vegetarian, like if you feel better when you, when you, when you find what works for you, I think that should be the real litmus. Mm -hmm. um, I, I do think that there are some deficiencies just from a nutrient standpoint if you're following a vegan diet strictly. Um, that's not to say you can't be a healthy vegan, uh, but I, I do think that it's, it's easier to be an unhealthy vegan because you, can, you try to fill in a lot of the, a lot of the holes with not, not such great filler. Um, but you know, I'm not a completely anti-carbohydrate guy, but I feel like we get plenty of carbohydrates from vegetables. Um, if, mm -hmm. you know, more than, more than we need, we don't need to be housing bowls of pasta all the time. That said, I totally get that a bowl of fresh pasta is really delicious and there's, there's a, there's an emotional value to that. There's some nutritional value and if you're healthy, it probably is not going to be deleterious to your health. If you're suffering from an autoimmune disease, if you have uh, leaky gut syndrome, I definitely think you should try to cut things like gluten out of your diet because they're probably going to be triggers for inflammation. Mm -hmm. How were you raised? Around food, mm -hmm. um, Vermont? Like how, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your, your background and your upbringing and how that also related in your association with food and family growing up. I, I grew up on a, on a very small farm in rural Vermont and I was always around good food. So I had, you know, we grew our own produce, we raised our own animals for meat. Um, and my early childhood was really uh, very steeped in that kind of bucolic world of, of being around animals all the time. Um, both my brother and I were uh, worked on the farm a lot, so we were hauling bales of hay and, 
and buckets of water from a young age, um, which I think is why we're both so stout. You know, <laughs> or, or doing a, we were doing CrossFit exercises before there was CrossFit, when we were like five or six years old. Um, and that's the way, by the way, it should be. Yeah. Those are the days that I really enjoy, yeah. okay? Let's move yeah. real things around. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> no, try doing a farmer's carry with two five-gallon buckets of water and running to that. It's very different from carrying kettlebells. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so so I grew grew up around a lot of food. One of the great things about, particularly the early part of my childhood, um, is that as a family we always ate dinner together at the table. And my brother and I, who were you know we were kids, we were engaged in that family conversation. Um, and I really, you know, I I I am very grateful for that. Um, you know, from a young age, we all, my parents and my grandmother had wine. We had wine water. We had water with a couple splashes of wine in it, so we felt like <laughs> in a wine glass that so we were participating and being a part of the family. Um, and, and I think that that fundamentally is one of the most important steps that anyone can take towards health and wellness, this idea of taking a minute to actually share a meal together. That's like a very, very important thing. And we, we know um, just, I mean, we know through studies that when, when, uh, when families eat together, uh, health, Issues go down, depression goes down, uh, uh, teenage pregnancy goes down, crime rate goes down. Like there are so many positive benefits to actually eating together that we've really forgotten that that important value. And, and I think that if you look around the world to the blue zones, the one um, the one kind of common factor that every one of these blue zones has is that people eat uh, socially. They eat together, and that that idea of socialization, I think, is. Um, it can't be understated the importance of that in health. So I was really lucky in my childhood to to, to have that. Is your family in the business at all? Uh, my dad's farm. You mentioned farm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So my, my dad has a small bakery, um, and he's got a small subsistence farm. Um, uh, they we we did a lot of we were never in the restaurant industry per se when I was growing up, um, but we uh, we we raised you know we. And we didn't sell any of our produce to, to any restaurants or anything like that. It's a very kind of rural demographic. Mm-hmm. Mostly we were raising for ourselves. Um, so I, I didn't, I, my exposure to hospitality didn't come until um, really high school when I started doing summer jobs and working in restaurants. But uh, yeah, that was kind of my first exposure. Obviously, I started as a dishwasher, as many people do, and kind mm-hmm. of worked my way through the kitchen and learned different skill sets throughout. Um, and it wasn't until after college that I even considered um, working in a restaurant as a career, and my grandmother basically said, "Listen, you're happiest when you're cooking," which is true. I loved cooking. I still love cooking. And her advice, which I think is very sage advice, is to follow your happiness. If you, if this is what makes you happy, try to do whatever you can to create a, a career around that activity. Mm-hmm. Grandmothers are wise. They I really guess. are <laughs> super smart. So, when you decided that you wanted to become a chef, or, or Mm-hmm. You spend your career time for the first half of your career at least in in restaurants. Did you travel? Um, did you train? Where did your influences come from? Say, okay, I'm going to take this from my love cooking to this is going to also be my my profession. And also going from a dishwasher to, to becoming a, yeah. you know, a a renowned chef. And by the way, I think everybody at some point in their life should work in a restaurant. It's yes. Still, the best jobs I've ever had in my life, learning experience-wise, and people want everything should be restaurant, back of house, front of house. <laughs> there's, there's something amazing about working in a restaurant. It teaches you a skill set that I think you can only learn in a restaurant. The ability to multitask, the ability to to prioritize, to work with, uh, with uh, um, 
uh, uncontrollables. I mean, there's it's not you know you're when you're dealing with people and you're managing people or you're working with a team in a high stress environment, it's very very challenging. And you learn how either you either you either succeed in some capacity and you figure out a way to succeed, or you're going to go down in flames. Mm-hmm. But for me, I you know my my love for food really um, was cemented my senior year in high school. I I did an exchange program in Spain and I lived with a host family in northern Spain. And uh, they they were a very, very serious food-loving family. And my host mom was a great cook and she loved that I was very interested in, in cooking and really interested in learning what to me was extremely exotic food. I was exposed to things that I had never seen before. I'd never, I'd never eaten octopus before. I had mm. the, the idea of eating fish with its head on or seeing <laughs> the eyeballs on, the, on shrimp. With, I mean, that was like totally foreign to me. So I got to really uh, to, to jump into a completely new culinary world. When I came back from that year in Spain, um, I, I had a very new um, and profound love for food. Uh, and I kept kind of chasing that dream. So I went back to Spain for university for two years and I, I worked in a little tapas bar. And um, I was just excited about, again, being steeped in this, what to me was very exotic and foreign food. Um, and and. I knew that I would return there. So I, I came back to the States and, and focused on, on cooking in the best places I could. Uh, I entertained the idea of going to culinary school after a couple of years of working in the industry. And uh, I actually, I enrolled for a week in culinary school and realized that it, it was a waste of my time and money because I already knew so much of the stuff that I was gonna be learning. And um, in fact, a, a really good chef here in New York City, Floyd Cardoso, who I worked for, said, Seamus, don't go to culinary school, just come and work for me and I'll pay you to learn as much as you would <laughs> learn in culinary school. So he was totally right. Um, and, uh, but I, I, after a few years of working in New York, I decided that I needed to, to really get um, some fundamental European training. And I was thinking about going to France, but I didn't speak French. And Spain at the time was really rising up as, the, as the, one of the, the preeminent culinary destinations in the world. And uh, so I, I was fortunate to go back to Spain. I worked there for a couple of years and, and, um, and really uh, learned so much about technique, um, obviously about Spanish food as well. And I brought that back to New York. So that was really to me. Do you speak the, Spanish? Yeah, no, I speak Spanish. Okay. Yeah. So you come back to New York. How do you open up a restaurant? It's not easy. <laughs> Listen, if there's ever a place that's challenging to open a restaurant, it's New York City. I mean, you have to first have an idea. And then that idea, um, you have to decide whether that idea has legs. Are other people going to appreciate that idea? And then you have to figure out, is that idea, can you monetize that idea? Um, so in my case, you know, I, I have this idea of doing Spanish food here in New York. There was nobody that was doing it. Um, I, I met someone who uh, had a restaurant, was interested in growing um, and opening uh, more restaurants. And we just started talking about, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to bring this, the casual dining style of Spain to New York City? Um, and from that, we, we, you know, we were able to start to build out uh, a design concept, a brand, an identity, um, a, a, uh, a food language, a culinary language, and then um, figure out, okay, can we, is this monetizable? Can we make, can we make money on it? And, mm-hmm. and used all of those assumptions to build out a, uh, a pro forma, um, and then go to the people that we knew as friends and family, and raise a little bit of money, and um, work with a broker and find a space, and you know that's that's how it happens in New York, and it's 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 tough. Um, it's really tough here 
for many reasons. One, the, the cost of doing business in New York is really high. Um, the cost of goods is very high. It's going to be higher than, you know, a tomato here is going to cost a lot more than it costs in Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, your, your, all, all of your, all of your ancillary costs from, uh, from your u- utilities to your water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then of course your occupancy expenses and, and labor, all of that stuff uh, makes it really challenging. But the, the, the upside is that it's New York city and you have, you, you've got, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people, going out to dinner every night in New York City. And it's a, it's a competitive landscape. There are lots and lots of restaurants, mm-hmm. but it is, uh, it is a place where you, if you do it well, you can establish a name for yourself, you can establish a brand that's recognized, and uh, there's a real opportunity for success. In all of those elements that you described in there, and being the chef, in the kitchen, mm-hmm. bringing yeah. the idea to life, ideas to execution. We talk about that a lot in, in mm-hmm. entrepreneurship. There's, it's so creative, and, and the margins as you get are so so slim. Also, in terms of people like what you're putting out, the quality yeah. of, of what you're putting out. But then all those other intangibles you discussed, whether it's rent and occupancy costs and food costs. Do you like that stuff too? You know, or, or mm-hmm. do you delegate that stuff out? I mean, you can't do it of you do it all, all. and yeah. very few people are also left brain, right brain, right brain able yeah, to yeah. do to do both of those things. And I work with a lot of, of restaurateurs and, and chefs and that relationship, you know, between an owner, operator, mm-hmm. chef, or a chef as operator, I, I'm always interested in that dynamic too. It's, yeah, it's a really hard dynamic. I think it's hard for for most people because there there seems to be uh, two two um, driving forces that are always at odds. The, the creative, um, and, and particularly when you're a chef operator, when you're, when you're responsible for the bottom line, it's an internal conflict because the, the creative aspect, you know, for me, I don't cook to make money, I cook to make people happy. So if I'm cooking for my friends at home, I, I really don't care how much it costs to buy the ingredients. What's important is I wanna buy the best quality ingredients to, mm-hmm. for the best expression of what I'm doing. And as an operator, you can't always do that. You can't afford to put truffle and, truffles and caviar and everything. There's just no way you can, um, and uh, and and so you have to strike a balance of understanding, and it requires a tremendous amount of engineering. You have to think about okay, these are uh, and as as Joel Robichon once famously said when someone asked him what the secret to his success was, he said potatoes, potatoes, potatoes. <laughs> so you have to find those those leaders on the menu, those things that people love. Mm-hmm. That don't cost you very much money that have good margins that people will spend the money on so that you can afford to have the things that people love but you lose money on so it's there's a lot of um there's a lot of engineering that goes into creating uh a menu that's well-rounded and that has the um that has the 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 margins that you need to be successful um and then also understanding like how much work goes into the production of something and that's where chefs are really good chefs are really good inherently they're sort of economists in, in many ways chefs know that it's in our it's in our dna and everything we've been taught that nothing gets wasted so if nothing gets wasted you're constantly trying to figure out ways to monetize um, what would otherwise be discarded uh, whether that's like you know classically um, for the longest time things like off cuts of meat that weren't mm-hmm. used whether that was um, oxtail or uh, or lamb shanks or short ribs. These are things that weren't considered prime cuts for a long time that were yep. discarded. And then chefs, we, you know, we realized, wait, we can monetize this. We can make money out of it, out of this. Um, 
But then to, to kind of have that, that notion of, of, of efficiency too, which is something I think that is really unique to chefs. We are inherently, we are the CEO of our station. We are the CEO of, our, of, the, of the dish we're making. We're the CEO of our ingredient. Um, we, we are very good at setting ourselves up um, for success because you have no other choice. The margins, again, are so slim that if you can't be really efficient, and that means efficiency in every capacity, efficiency of movement within your, within your kitchen space. If you have five dishes and, and, uh, and all those five dishes, they have their own main components, but they share five shared components. When you're setting up your station, those five shared component, components are kind of in the middle so that you're never reaching over yourself to get something. You know, you're, you, you, when you're working in your workflow and, uh, and the expediter calls a number of tickets, you figure out how you can combine those tickets to work those four dishes together so that you can bring everything up at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a combination of being an economist, an air traffic controller, uh, you have to be self-motivated and self-managed, and at the same time, you have to completely be um, an indulgent, creative person that wants nothing more than to put the best possible foot forward and the best ingredient on the plate. Yeah, and I love the analogies. Now, you've been awarded, decorated, I mean, you've had tremendous, tremendous and well-deserved success. Awards, success, money, to the customer, how much, and I guess in a way, do they, do they matter, you know, overall? To, to the success of the restaurant, how much do they matter to you professionally? Is it about, you know, the accolades mm -hmm. or Beard Award or nomination, or mm -hmm. is it about, we're full every night and people love what I have? You know, and again, I found that potato, potato, potato yeah. thing that, that's working, you know? You know, the, the awards and accolades are, are, are help, certainly helpful to to keeping flu tra through traffic into the restaurant and keeping you relevant within the within a, a crowded um, dining space. Um, but ultimately, the, the the things that stick with you most are the uh, are the are the personal stories, the the stories that really have um, you know that, that that have have a lot of deep meaning, and that could be something as simple as um, you know. I had I had employees that had worked for me for twelve years that stuck with me for twelve years and were were very loyal and to me that was that said more about um, the the culture that we've been able to create within the restaurants than than any accolades or any stars in in, in, in a review could mean. There's another there's a great story that that I love. There was a um, two two couples who came into. Uh, into the restaurant when we first opened the restaurant we had um, a communal table and they both came in on on blind dates and uh at one point the guy from one couple and the the woman from another couple the other couple got up to go to the bathroom the other two started talking to each other and said how's your date going they both said awful <laughs> and the guy later on when they all kind of got up slipped his number to the woman next to him who was on the other date and they ended up going out on their first date coming back to the restaurant sitting at the communal table having a great date and then a year later, they came back in, sat at the table, and he proposed to her. And then a year later, they came back in to announce that they were pregnant. And then a year after that, they came back. Um, oh, wow. they, they came back to celebrate the birth of their child. So they kept coming back, and like that was the sort of story that that's that's to me what what food can do and experience can do it can bring people together in a way that nothing else can. And that's you know that's something that just uh, I'll never forget that knowing that the food that we cooked and the environment that we created was instrumental in in creating a life of happiness and, and building a family. Mm -hmm. I was told once by, by a friend and, and a client of mine, he said, you know, you're not, 
you're not really a restaurateur until, until you close a restaurant also. And I do want to touch on this a little bit. And, every, and restaurants close for a variety of different reasons or transitions, but you have transitions out of owning and operating mm -hmm. your, your restaurants to the next phase of, of your career. And I want to just touch on that a little bit, how you made the decision to kind of mm -hmm. to transition and where, you, and where you're going now, because it's this positive lifestyle transition. And just in talking to you now for, for 40 minutes, and you're incredibly expressive, incredibly mm -hmm. open, and the story is there. And I just wonder, you know, a little bit, if, if you're just in the kitchen in a restaurant, do you have the opportunity to express yourself that way through your food, but yeah. not verbally or to even as wide an audience as you can get now with books and speaking and traveling. So if you could just talk about that a little a little bit. Yeah, no, definitely. And I, for me, as, as we, we touched on this in the beginning, when, when I went through this tra transition from going from being a really sick person to getting onto a path of, of, of health, and I think an important side note to that is that I never, I, and this is really important to me, I never um, have thought of health as being a destination. Uh, you know, like now I've got health. Now I got that. All right, box checked, job done. Move on to the next thing. It's like anything else. It's a journey, and it's it's it requires just like uh, just like a, a performance sports car. You have to maintain it, and if you don't maintain it, it's going to go to shit eventually. Um, and being in 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 a, operating a restaurant on a day to day basis, one makes it very difficult um, to maintain and care for yourself because of the realities of operating a restaurant. Uh, it's not to say it's impossible to strike that work-life balance, but it's difficult. Mm -hmm. And two, you totally hit the nail on the head. There's only so many people that I can affect um, on a daily basis if I'm cooking in my restaurant. And having gone through this transition, one of the things that I've really learned is that I have a, I have a story to share. I have an important message. I have a greater meaning in my life, which is not just to cook food and make something really delicious that people are like, oh, that was really great. Um, but rather to help other people understand their own capacity to care for themselves through the choices they make on a daily basis. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to give you all the answers because I don't have all the answers. I'm just as fucked up as everyone else. But I know, you know, I know some of the things that work for me and I've been able to, to achieve something that from the outside might, might seem completely um, unachievable or unattainable or, or unrealistic mm -hmm. and remarkable. Um, but I'm not remarkable. I'm just like everyone else. Uh, and, you know, I, I, yes, I was able to reverse what's considered to be an incurable autoimmune disease. I lost 65 pounds. I went from being, thinking I would never exercise again to doing really, really impressive and, and very, very challenging athletic uh, feats. And, uh, and, but I'm not unusual. Anyone can do this. Most people can do this with enough discipline, enough support, um, uh, enough guidance, and that's mm -hmm. really, really important, thinking you can do it on your own. And so that, to me, is really, has really has become such an important part of, uh, of, of what I do in my own life, in my professional life. And um, to be operating a business that is eking out a profit and banging my head against the wall and only able to touch so many people on a daily basis, um, I, I got to the point where I realized it was not the most efficient use of my of, of this precious time that we have on earth because this is the the greatest and most valuable commodity we have is the is the time that we have on earth so i, I realized that and, I, and i'm constantly realizing that i want to make the most out of every moment i have and to be uh, to be caught in a, a, a rut of doing something that is 
is impeding my ability to actually really fulfill my what I believe to be my, my true mission and my calling. Um, while I'm very, very grateful for the time, that I, the years that I spent in the restaurant, and, mm -hmm. and it certainly taught me more than anything, it taught me um, discipline and it taught me uh, technical skills and also a sense of confidence too. Um, being able to, to, to cook well and cook delicious food and learn you know, to be able to execute is, is very empowering because it allowed me to understand that, oh, if I can do this, I can do other things too. I can apply the, these skills or I can apply this mindset. Um, you know, I, we often, it was funny with my friends who are chefs, we often joke about it when we see things that are being run inefficiently or, you know, there's, uh, the, the, there's, there's a problem that could be solved in our minds quite simply. But I was like, we should, chefs should be operating this because we know how, we know how to get shit done. Mm -hmm. That's what we do. And because we come from a mindset of getting shit done, being able to take that and apply it to different aspects of, of, of your personal and professional life, I think is a real valuable skill set. Um, so, you know, transitioning out of being an operator on a day to day basis into um, whatever the fuck it is that I do now um, <laughs> has been has not been without its challenges, but it's also been it's been hugely liberating, too, because it's allowed me the opportunity to open up to really do the things that are extremely fulfilling to me. Um, and being able to touch other people's lives and, and, and affect positive change and help other people get onto a path that allows them to affect positive change, I see that then compounding and paying it forward to other people. And, I, and you know, that's, that's hugely rewarding to me when I see guys that over the past few years, I've helped change their life within the industry. I mean, I have friends who are chefs who have turned, who've turned their lives around in a very similar way that I have. And now I'm seeing these guys as inspiration to other people. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, I'm, I'm seeing like three generations of, of help that I've been a part of. Um, that's hugely rewarding to me. I, I think it's amazing. I do think that, I don't necessarily always like to use the word trend, but I do think that there is a, a what I'm seeing is a tipping or a shift. Groundswell. In, it's yes, a groundswell, baby. In the hospitality and restaurant yep. industry of healthier chefs, yeah. okay? Um, brighter lifestyles, yeah. around, surrounding themselves, you know, you're still making amazing, delicious, wonderful foods, but I think yeah, you're seeing more of the personality and a healthier lifestyle and a commitment to ingredients and again, sustainability and longevity. That yeah. We don't have to be big, hefty, you know, un unhealthy, giant port. I think with the industry, Getting wasted every night, yep. partying, yeah, no. That we go out, you know, restaurants close at midnight or two, and we yeah. go out until the sun comes up. I think you're, we're seeing that groundswell, and I think it's, I think not only is it great for the industry, but the trickle-down effect that it has on the public and the population and the yeah. number of people that can be positively affected by that, too, yeah. is, is amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a, I mean, in the restaurant, we have a bully pulpit. We and we and we have to decide what how we choose to use it, and uh, and it's great to see so many chefs that are getting into fitness and getting you know guys like my friend uh, Matthew Jennings who's in Boston, um, uh, seeing and from all angles of, of health and wellness, not just physicality and being mm -hmm. physical, but people like Chef Jose Andres who's doing so much to contribute um, from a humanitarian standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's great. You know, we have we are spokespeople as chefs. We really. Um, we really are. And the reality is that the choices that we make on our plate are choices that affect so much. Uh, they're political choices. There's no way around it. Food, food is politics. Um, 
and, and, and food is, as we now know, and, and everybody can agree upon, food is health too. So those choices we make around food ultimately are, are affecting our, our overall health, which in turn has a direct impact into the healthcare crisis that we're facing in, in the nation, which is, you know, if you look at, if you ask any of the economists, they'll tell you that the healthcare crisis is unsustainable and presents one of the greatest threats to national security in the future. The fact that we are forced to spend so much money on trying to treat a sick populace, there's mm-hmm. not enough money to, to protect the country. Um, so we, we really don't have a choice as a nation but to reevaluate the relationship we have with food. And as chefs, we have a, you know, we have a, a responsibility, we have a duty, but we also have a great opportunity to, uh, to proselytize and to change, um, to affect to, to change, positive change across the landscape. Now to ask you, favorite food or meal? If you could, you can make anything. Right yeah. now. You can make anything or you can eat anything yeah. you know, right now. Do yeah. you have a favorite? So many things that I love and it's a really difficult, I think as a chef it's very difficult to, 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 to just kind of drill down and isolate one thing. I've, I've, there are things that I've had that have just been, you know, uh, I, I have this thing that, that, that when, I, when I eat sushi and it's really good, I kind of close my eyes and I just kind of, I'm like, mm, oh, oh, mm. kind of like have this, this grunt of moan of like, this uni is so fucking good. Um, and 99% of the time, it's usually a very simple dish with, um, with a few ingredients, and the ingredients are exceptional. So, it, I mean, a favorite meal, one of the most memorable meals of my life was eating at, uh, there's a restaurant in, in um, the Basque Country in Spain called Echivarri, where everything is cooked over wood fire. And um, uh, Vittorio has been doing this, he me opened the restaurant many, many years ago, and and it has become famous over the past few years. I was lucky to go there uh, almost 20 years ago with a chef that I worked with before anyone knew who he was and before he was on the map. And it was really extraordinary. And it was just, it, things were so simple. Like they were, you know, we had a dish that was anchovies, the anchovies del Cantabrico, they're from the Cantabrian Sea, these fat fillets of anchovies with really good olive oil. And that was it. And it was just so remarkably good. Or, you know, he did these little um, quisquillas, these little... Uh, uh, um, baby shrimp that he he had a, gr- a mesh pan that he had designed that he could grill the shrimp in a mesh pan over the fire mm. so they're just lightly cooked um, and so you had olive oil shrimp salt and and smoke those are the only things that were in, in, the, in the dish and, they were, and it was extraordinary um, I you know I love cooking I have to be honest I love cooking at, in the height of summer the height of produce when when the vegetables are at their most their, their mm-hmm. most uh, vibrant and, and the, the farmer's market is overflowing. Um, and, and usually it's just something really simple. You know, it's usually vegetables and olive oil and herbs and maybe there's a, a little bit of protein in some capacity, but um, I'm pretty much happy cooking anything as long as the ingredients are good. <laughs> Talk about cycling a little bit. There's a bike on the wall. There's lots of bikes. <laughs> there's like 15 of them. You only saw, okay. there's three of them over there. There's more in there. Okay. I got so a house bike. upstate with more bikes. There's, there's a lot of bikes. bikes. Yeah. Are hard. There are bikes to be ridden. Yeah. You know, yeah. Tell me about your love of cycling. Uh, cycling is, well, gosh, I don't even know where to begin, but I would say that one of the great things about riding a bike is um, automatically, I would say without fail, most people, when they get on a bike, the first thing that happens is they smile. There's something really remarkable and fun about riding a bike. I think a bicycle is an incredible metaphor for life in many ways, uh, that if you are standing still, you're going to fall over. 
you need momentum, you need forward momentum. Um, and in that sense, I think that it really reflects what I believe to be true about life, that if you become stagnant or, or mired in the past and just regretting what you've done in the past, you're gonna, you're gonna never move forward. So the bike, it helps you move forward. The other thing that's great about the bicycle is that as a kid, the moment you throw a leg over a bicycle is the first moment that you're truly free of your parents. It's the first moment that you have, like, you have autonomy. You can go and do something on your own. You can ride to the end of the driveway without anyone's help. You know, you can go, and eventually that becomes like a, 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 a literally a vehicle, but kind of a metaphorical vehicle for, um, for independence and confidence as a, as a, as a child. Um, so I started riding bikes when I was really little. And then I, I in, later in high school and in college, I started racing bicycles. Now of college, I got really into racing mountain bikes. And, um, and so they've always been a really important part of my life. And then as I got sick in my mid to late 20s, I, I hung the bike up and I didn't ride it for 10 years, 11 years. Um, and I never thought I would ever ride a bicycle again. Uh, and then in reclaiming my health, the, I, had a, I had a moment where after working with, with my doctor, who's an amazing doctor of functional medicine, um, after working with him for about a year, uh, I, I had a moment, actually that was only six months after we started working together, where I woke up and I didn't have pain in my hands and my feet. And uh, the first thought that came to me was, I'm going to get my fucking bike off the wall and pump the tires <laughs> for a bike ride. And I hadn't ridden my bike in years, and it was just... This, it was like being a kid all over again, and I realized this is my happy place. This is what I love doing. So the bike has always been, um, for me, it's it, the road bike is a social element. I ride with my friends. We, we you know, we have, we have, our, our, we we catch up. And even though it's, uh, it, it's not to say we're just like farting along and, and and chewing the fat. We we can ride really hard and push each other and, and get get very competitive. But the mountain bike for me is really my meditative state. That's like going to church for me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm in the woods. Um, you have to be highly focused in the moment. Um, the thing about mountain biking is that if you're not in the moment, you're going to be on your ass with, you know, <laughs> as, as I, I just broke three ribs about five weeks ago, mountain mm. biking, because well, I was in the moment, but I came around a corner and there was a big drop off. And, and sometimes even being in the moment, you, you still going to end up flat on your ass, but there is this meditative element of riding the mountain bike that I just love. And you're surrounded by nature, which I think is visually just having, having landscape around you, whether it's the green, dense you know woodlands that you're riding in or or whatever it might be like that's so nourishing to the body and to the soul um that you know i i it's something i always carve carve out time for myself to do amazing the book is real food heals eat to feel younger and stronger every day this has been an incredible conversation i've really enjoyed learning so much more about you and your perspective philosophy on everything uh Upstate, we'll go for a ride one day. Yeah, definitely. Okay, absolutely. Anytime do it. you want. Uh, I really, really enjoyed this. I mean, there's just such positive messaging out there for for all the guys as well. Um, keep doing a little bit better every day. Yeah. You know, change the way you eat, change the way you live. Just little things all the time. And I appreciate you sharing sharing some of your story. And I certainly look forward to uh, to all that is to come and yeah. the next phases. So, Seamus, thank you, Midlife Mail Podcast. Check us out. And if you want more information on Seamus and everything he is up to, you are going to visit SeamusMullen.com. That's right. And on social media, it's at SeamusMullen. All right. Thanks again. We'll talk to you guys next week. Peace. The Midlife Mail Podcast with Greg Scheinman was presented by Inns Group Insurance. Inns Group is ensuring success. 
For more information, visit endsgroup.net.